Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz saxophonist, flautist, composer, and arranger, Greg Abate. Over the course of our conversation, we talked about a great number of things. This Rhode Island native was part of the 2016 class inducted into the Rhode Island Hall of Fame. And this cat has had a very long and storied jazz existence. He got educated at the Berklee College of Music and went on to become the lead alto in the Ray Charles Orchestra. He spends over 225 days a year touring the globe and has played with many jazz cats over the years. He has a lot of stories and a lot of insights so please get to know greg and dig this interview my friends more importantly what i want to ask about that's gone on lately is your latest album the live album it was released in 2016 with phil woods at chance give me an idea of what it was like to perform with phil and what this album means to you well that was our second recording the first one was done in 2012 and that was uh the, our first encounter, our first meeting personally, the first time he came in session, but we had spoken on the phone a few times, and he he had mentioned that he liked my playing and he liked to do something with me. And so the second one came up after a series of different gigs through the country. We had gone and played in different cities, Cleveland, you know, Philadelphia, Boston, you know, different places, Delaware. New Jersey, etc. And then what the second recording, the live one was an idea. And uh, uh, playing on this next to him was like using no net because he wanted to have no rehearsal and we just did it like straight live. And I actually forgot I was recording. He said, uh, there's been quotes saying that um, Phil brought the best out of me. And it was just like a Zen feeling. And um, I absorbed so much from him just playing next to him, you know, and hearing how he approaches things. In, in you know melodically, but it was um, and also playing with the person, an alto player that I emulated for many for many many years, you know, and having the opportunity and the the blessing to be able to stand next to him and play, you know, and he, he sort of like uh, he legitimized my playing, you know, when you hear, hear someone like Phil Woods say that, you know, that I. I play with passion and I play the real thing and my music is, is, you know, I make good music and he likes to make music with me. And that's something that you, it's like playing, I guess, baseball with uh, Ted Williams or somebody, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you grow up in uh, Rhode Island? Yes. Give me an idea of your childhood growing up. What made you gravitate towards music and more specifically jazz? Well, you know what? That's a good one, Joe, because I don't know. I just had the feeling. I, I was driven. You know, it's like a thing, that ha- a passion for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved Dave Brubeck and Paul Desmond when I was younger, a kid. But I didn't get into Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and all those great bot players till later on after I was at Berkeley at College of Music, you know. So I just, uh, music is my life. It's like it chose me, really. I think that's what I, I am. I'm a musician, you know, jazz artist, composer. I never get bored with it. Never never feel like uh, I can't wait to get the horn in my mouth or sit down at a piano and write music. So I want to ask you this. Why is it that the saxophone was your primary instrument? I played clarinet first, most my first instrument as a child. And then I went into the, uh, sax- to the saxophone in the ninth grade when I was in the uh, jazz band at school. So they didn't 
they needed saxophone because the saxophones was five of us, and the clarinet went aside just for classical music. And then I, from there, I, I remember buying a soprano, and then I get the tenor. I own a baritone, a lot of different horns and flute. Sure. So let me ask you this: When you were a kid, was there a jazz album that totally blew your doors down that you were like, "Wow, I just..." heard something amazing. I did like uh, John Coltrane, you know, on that, the album with Miles Davis. And I liked the, the uh, Cannonball Adderley and that, the quintet. Uh, it was John Coltrane kind of blue and uh, Miles Davis kind of blue and, and the, with John Coltrane and, and Cannonball. And also, there's a Phil Woods album I really liked, Live at the Showboat, you know, and that was really, that really, um, I listened to that over and over again and, uh, just to hear I just love the way the phrasing was and the sounds and the, the the arrangements, you know. So that was one of them. I like that a lot. I, uh, you know, I like a lot of the great alto players, all the way, you know, from Benny Carter and beyond, you know, uh, you know, Lou Donaldson and, uh, you know, Sonny Skip, Eric Dolphy. But there's all, like, Art Pepper was a favorite of mine, too. And Phil Woods, of course. You know, yeah. So let me ask you this. When you were a kid, was it always going to be music for you when you grew up, or were there other dreams you had? No, I didn't have any anything else I, I wanted to do. But like I said, the music was just an ongoing thing. I never really planned to be a professional musician. I just evolved into playing my instrument, and then I do some gigs here, and I, and I play, and I join a different band, form a band. But I did other jobs as a kid, you know, like working in stores and doing caddies thing, doing caddying, or I would work as, a, you know, uh, in a in a garage pumping gas and stuff like that, you know. But then when I was doing my music, it just stayed there. And you know, after I really started to play, when I was in Los Angeles and doing things on with different bands and Ray Charles, and I just kept continued to go and do my my music, you know. I'm teaching at a college part-time, too, in Rhode Island. I teach there jazz studies, adjunct studies, and it's like I'm part-time uh, playing, uh, I mean, teaching four courses at a college, um, and I've been there for 12 years in the midst of my touring and everything. I managed to hold it. Yeah, yeah. So Are you in I'm Kansas? Gonna do, I'm in Kansas, Kansas City? City. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I played the Blue Room there a lot of times, man. A couple of times. I'm trying to get back there. Just trying to get some, some, some find an agent in town or something to get me back to Bridgetown, you know? Oh man, yeah, yeah. that's that's the place to yeah. play. That's that's the premier place. I played there twice, but maybe I'll try again. Yeah, yeah, that'd be well, wonderful. I'd, I'd love to see you come here and see you live for sure. Oh yeah. So let me ask you this. You uh, you were talking about being a teacher now, but let's go back to when you went to Berkeley. What did you learn in a formal environment like Berkeley about music? Well, I, I learned that it's really intricate, and it's like really got to be spot on to make it the, the harmonies right and things. But you have to know the language of of the music to improvise and play jazz. Although some of the great players didn't know theory that well. They just played more instinctively, and they just had a knack with the technique that they had to be able to make really nice solos. But I learned uh, there's a lot of uh, technical things I learned there, and that was in the 60s, late 60s. So it was the real jazz bebop school at that time, you know? 
Yeah. That's, that's right. I learned how to write um, and compose and ideas about composing and arranging and playing, improvising. I wish I had done more when I was in school and worked harder at this stuff, but I did do quite a lot of work. You always go back and think you could have done it better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know? Everything's twenty twenty in hindsight, for sure. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's what age does to you. What, the one thing that I find interesting is after you get done with Berkeley, you go out and you're the lead alto with Ray Charles' orchestra. That had to be a great experience at that point in your life. It was. I couldn't. Well, I, I did believe I got the gig because I did it. But, you know, I... I had no idea what I was getting into in the that the, the walking into there and doing the auditions. I feel kind of kind of cool about that. I didn't yeah. know I play. I would. Uh, I guess already did like my my tone and my sound, and and I guess I was good enough to be in the band. So I I, I did work. I it was an accomplishment, you know. And I yeah. I didn't. It didn't really hit me. I didn't get a big head about it or anything at my late twenties. I didn't. I just, like, did it like it was just something that I was doing, you know? And I was very happy to be with them, the band. It was an experience. I wish my kids would experience something like that in their life that makes them feel really good, you know? Yeah. In 78, you uh, formed Channel One. That leads to gigs with Artie Shaw's orchestra. What was that like? Yeah. That, what was that whole experience like? Well, that was first, Channel One. That was my... I grew. I I started writing. Well, I went in to see a band play, and they were called the Vipers, and they were doing a lot of Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross, and they were doing a lot of like New Orleans type jazz. You know, really, they had a vocalist, and he'd sing all these great tunes. And then they asked me to sit in with them. There was another sax player and trumpet player. I sat in, and then they asked me to join the band, and I joined the band, and then. I started writing tunes, and it was totally formed. It went into this other vein of music, and we replaced certain players and stuff, and we got other guys to play uh, more modern. Um, it was like a fusion band, and I, I wrote a lot of the music, and it became my band. So that, that went on for several years. In the midst of that, I was playing in a big band with Dick Johnson, this clarinetist that took over the Artie Shaw book. He was another mentor of mine, an uh, alto player and, and great clarinet player because Artie Shaw gave him the uh, the book. He, Artie said he was the, the best, the greatest clarinet player he ever heard in, 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 in modern time. So Dick got the job as the, the Artie Shaw leader in playing the Artie Shaw parts. Artie would still be there in, in body, but he wouldn't play. And he'd come with us on gigs. But Dick hired me to play the tenor chair, one of the tenor chairs. So I got to do that for two years. And I learned I learned a lot about Artie Shaw and the music and the in the tradition of that style of the of the of the American songbook tunes. Another education right there. And then after I left that I went into my own I started to go to Canada and uh, I was playing in, in Quebec City and in Montreal, and I started to, I got that, that night, I was in Montreal, people from New York and London, record company, were there, and they asked me if I'd like to record an album for the Candid label, and I, and I said, yeah, and it, it happened for two years later, I did my first recording in New York at Birdland with, uh, live with James Williams, um, Rufus Reed, and, and Kenny Washington, and then that led to 
other recordings with Candid, and then I started to go on the road, you know, do things like coming to Kansas or going to St. Louis or California. And I, the first gig I got from my first recording was out KBEM in um, in Minneapolis. They called me up and said, hey, you want, want to come out here and do a thing at this club we're booking, you know? And I went out there, and then that led to other stuff. And then, you know, you know people like you calling me and, you know, that sort of thing. I totally love it. The one thing I did notice is that you're a prolific traveler. It said almost 225 days a year are devoted to traveling. Yeah. What, what What is that like to see that much of the world and to be that consistent with delivering music to people? I find that traveling can be extensive. Like, I look at my stuff in July coming up in, in England. I've got, like, I've got one day off in about three weeks, uh, about three. Well, I'm there on the 7th to the 28th, and I have one day off. And I know that every time I go, I play my horn at the gig, it's, it's always a challenge. It's not a challenge. It's more of a, a mission to play the best I can every time. And, but the, the traveling is really intense, and sleeping in a different place every night or every two nights, is it's a challenge to do that. But I don't know how to answer that other than, it's interesting the places that I've seen and, and, and gone to and stayed at, little places, big places, you know, you know, five-star places, like one-star places, you know, yeah. different people's homes, getting to know their families and seeing their kids grow up, you know, going all I mean, many years of traveling. So, I don't know, I, I, I don't get tired of it, but I'm hoping that I can keep the inertia going because the, the travel on the road, especially when you're uh, away from America and you're on another country, takes a lot of energy. I'm doing it on my own, so I travel and I go meet up with the bands at the, at the clubs. They have different rhythm sections, so I play with a different band almost every night, different people. Well, so over your career, you've released 17 recordings as a leader, many others as a sideman, and collaborations like with Phil Woods. Was there a particular era or not your most favorite project, but just a project that really made you grow immensely as a as an artist? I think with Phil Woods, the last couple of records with him, I think that 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 set me off into a different direction. I I recorded uh, another album before after the first album with Phil. I did an album called Motif, you know, and that was its quartet. And that rhythm section also now went to, we did the double, the, the live one with Phil. So I, I felt like my playing has grown a lot since that affiliation with, with Mr. Woods. And then uh, I just recorded another England, an album in England in November. And I, I'm working on a new original uh, quartet album. It's all mixed almost on Wailing City. It's going to come out at the end of the year. And then I'm supposed to do another recording with the guitarist Peter Hand from New York, the guitarist. And we're going to do something for Wailing next year in 2017. So pretty busy. Absolutely. You were inducted into the Rhode Island Hall of Fame in 2016, and you've gotten awards over your life. Let me ask you this. Is there an award, not your favorite one, but was there an award that you received that just kind of threw you into a surprise? You just didn't expect it, and it really was special for you. Yeah, this last one, this one, the Rhode right. Island Music Hall. I had no idea. I got a phone call and someone said, "Hey, this is so. This is me, Rick Belair." <laughs> I I said hi and I said, "Yeah, yeah. I wanted to tell you that we're inducting you into the 
Music Hall of Fame. And, you know, I want you to keep it quiet for a couple of months, but we're going to get back in touch with you and then make it public in February. So wow. that was cool. I knew I knew it for a few months, and I, I kept it I kept it silent. I didn't tell anybody. And I and I was thinking about it, pondering on how cool that was. And actually, a lot of people say it's really an honor to have that, like to be acknowledged, you know, and by and I. So, but it's the same. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, it doesn't affect me about what I think about myself. It doesn't make me think more of myself because of it. It just to me those those are things of acknowledgement by people that know you or don't know you, and and they will know you, you know. So it it helps it helps the whole scheme of of the picture. You know, it's not one thing that that does it. You know. Yeah, keep it all in perspective, but it all comes into my music somehow. Yeah, all my experiences come out through my music. So yeah, that's yeah. about it. Yeah, that's cool. Let me ask you this: We touched on your uh, teacher at the uh, at the Rhode Island College. Let me ask you this: What's your philosophy on teaching kids jazz and music? I take it really seriously, um, and I try to put myself in their place, but. Uh, it's to set an example of what is is really done. See, for me, I'm I'm a true artist that's doing what I'm teaching, and I might not be the best teacher technically, but I I think that I teach well enough that they get they can see it done, and they know that I'm the real deal that does it, and I'm not just doing a book teaching, you know. So, I think my philosophy for any teaching that I do is to be uh, patient and try to give the information and show and then not to take personal uh, take it personal that someone's not doing as well as they should but knowing that you did as much as you could to like give the information it's up to them to take that and to go and do something with it you know that's what you do and, and that's all you can do as a teacher that's my philosophy on it is that a good one, do you think, or do you think I should maybe do you have any uh, ideas about what I said that, that you think they could be better? I don't know. No, I think that's a that's a great way. I think taking it, I think what you said is the epitome of a good musician. You take it seriously, you dig into to, to what's true to you, and you give that to the future because that's what you're doing. You're planting a seed for all of these musicians that are going to take over where you are at some point. You know, hopefully, so. yeah. Like, yeah, I like to see more excitement. Like, I'll I'll play p- piano and, and some chords in my classes, and I say, listen to this chord. You know, I, I'm all excited about it, and it, there's no reaction. You know, I'm saying, don't you don't you hear that? Isn't that great? That sound of this voicing. That this is what you do. You put this this. You make the third, seventh, and then you put the this and the ninth at the top there, and you just. They they hear, but they don't get excited about it. Some people don't get excited about it as much as others, you know. Yeah. So you, people don't hear things the same as every as others. Everybody hears differently. What teacher gave that excitement to you? Do you remember a teacher specifically that was really passionate and gave you that bug? Uh, I heard Pomeroy, a teacher in line writing and trumpet player at Berkeley. Heard Pomeroy, John Laporta, clarinet player. Joe Viola, saxophone. Dick Johnson, I, I consider him a teacher. 
see that those those four. Those people right there would be considered heroes to a lot of people in the world of jazz. Who were your jazz heroes? Who do you admire the most? Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie. I like uh, Phil Woods, of course. Art Pepper, Dexter Gordon, Pepper Adams, uh, Freddie Hubbard, Lee Morgan, uh, Benny Carter, Cannonball Adderley, Chick Corea. I love Chick. Benny Golson. I mean, I've got so many. I mean, I go on and on. And I sure I play with. Them. I think back at all of the great players I played with and all instruments. It's amazing. I'm just drummers, you know, the very drummers I played with. I've done a lot of stuff. I look back in hindsight and I think, you know, if I had to write everything down, I, I know I'd be forgetting somebody, but <laughs> yeah, it's really, really great. I played with Red Rodney. Never wow. came out. Mm-hmm. I love him. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Let's whittle this list down. If you could, if you could pick one of those musicians right there and go back in time and see them play live, who would you want to see? Wow, man, I want to see more of them. I want to see them all. I guess. Yeah, I mean, there you go. Just, that's the answer. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's good. That would be ask, something. Yeah, it would be amazing. Sonny be Rollins amazing. too. You know, Sonny Rollins, Wayne Shorter. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. So many players, you know, I mean, you know, we all have a voice, you know, when you get to a certain point, either you become really well known or you become known or you, you have a, a different level, you know, it's hot. The great thing about Wayne and Sonny is they're still out there doing it. You know, when I think about that list of cats that you have to be kind of mystical about, wow, I'd like to go back and see them. You know, you can still see Wayne and Sonny out doing their thing. So. Sonny, I hope he's still playing a lot. I don't know about that, though. Yeah, they're getting to that point. So let me ask you this. Just a general question. You're a man that has dedicated your life to the jazz arts. Why do you love jazz? I think it's a freedom of speech in a way that I have freedom. to. to this is my my special thing that I can do, and it's something that no one can take from me. And I, I can, like, play my instrument. And, I, I mean, I can make melodies happen and stuff. And it's, I guess it's the closest thing I can come to, like, like, God or somebody, something that's like out of the reach of humanity. It's more of a spiritual thing to me now. And I just feel the horn vibrate. Like, I just feel that vibration. It's it's complicated to explain. It's a very special feeling. I only have a couple more questions. And one, one question that I have for you is this. Everybody has their version of who you are. Your fans do. Your family does. Your business associates. But who do you think you are? Oh, jeez, you got some great questions, man. I, I think I, I'm inside my body somehow, but I mean, and I try to keep myself healthy. So I think I'm a, I'm a conscientious person that has respect for other people and likes to treat people like I like to be treated, and I like like the music has to be sincerely. Played, I, you know, and I, there's no way that I cannot play music that way. So I think that I'm actually um, an artist, uh, but I don't think I'm somebody else. I think I'm Greg Abate. That's what yeah. I think I am. I'm original. Let me ask you this. This is my final question. You're far from being done, but you've talked about, you know, if you had to write down everybody you played with, you'd probably forget somebody. But when you think about the entirety 
of your jazz career that's been very layered and very busy. What do you want people to remember you by when they peel back the layers of jazz history and they come across your name? How do you want them to remember who you are and what you gave to the world? Um, some nice compositions and a feeling of sincerity and, you know, a nice tone. Uh, the guy had a great sound. 100% agree with that. Hey, Greg, thank you again for your time, man. Good luck with everything. And Well, thanks a lot. Say hi to all the musicians out there. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, Rhode Island, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Greg for his warmth, his music, and his great jazz story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or you can visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.